This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dr. Dawn on Careers. Welcome to Dr. Dawn on Careers on Sirius XM channel 132. This is your host, Dr. Don Graham, and I lead career coaching for the executive MBAs at the Wharton School. I'm also a licensed psychologist, former corporate recruiter, and author of the book, Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and See Success. And we're excited to be bringing you all new content this summer. So mark your calendars for noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific every Thursday and tune into channel 132 for the latest career tips, job search advice, and market updates. And of course, a big shout out to Dion Simpkins, our engineer, and Dana Cash, our producer, for making Dr. Don on Careers possible each week. You guys rock. So let's dive in. This week, I am very, very fortunate to speak with Dr. Brandy Baldwin. Dr. Brandy is a psychology and business professor turned entrepreneur who is a thought leader and author tackling the world's most relevant business challenges, specifically diversity and inclusion, motivating millennials to level up their leadership, and advocating for equity in all levels of business. As the CEO of Millennial Ventures, Dr. Brandy also hosts the Diversity and Confusion podcast and Career Therapy podcast. She is the founding visionary for Calling All Allies, an initiative that empowers organizations to address their commitment to equity by making necessary positive change in the areas where culture and climate intersect with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome, Dr. Brandy. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here, and I think we're going to have a lively discussion. I am so excited because I just happened to see you on um, facilitate a panel a few weeks ago and everything you were saying was just resonating with me on so many levels. So I'm so excited to be able to share this with our listeners because it's such an important topic. And the first place I want to go is in that webinar, you redefined the order of DEI and I, I loved your reasoning behind it. So can you share this with us? Sure. So, you know, I think that so many people are used to saying DEI, they're used to sort of the concept of diversity, and it's something that you can see it's tangible when, you know, organizations become more diverse. But at the end of the day, a lot of people do not know, especially professionals and leaders within companies, that it should be EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion. The idea is that you want to make any organization ready for the diversity that you want. So what we don't want to do is sort of color, you know, the space and say, oh, wow, we have people of all different shades and backgrounds here without answering the question, is the organization really ready for the diversity? Do they have the systems and processes in place that are equitable? Um, And then, you know, inclusion is that last aspect, right? It's the belonging. It's making sure that everyone is included. But the very first step is equity. And when you have that shift it really, you know, it starts to elevate your strategy from something that, of course, has not worked as well as it should have in the last maybe 20 years or so, but that 
you know, DEI needs to mature. And I think part of this industry, you know, maturing and getting better and having the outcomes that we want is even us as practitioners acknowledging that equity should be first in the equation. Yeah, I love that. And um, I'm so excited that you had the opportunity to share that because it makes so much sense. I think a lot of people are rushing out to try and make changes, but you really need to think through the order of things if you want it to make lasting results. And I, I do want to get into some of the basics because today I want to talk about allyship. And we hear a lot about allyship and what it is, what it isn't, who, who's good at it, who's not good at it. And it's really um, something that, again, I think we need to understand on an individual and personal level to be able to make lasting changes in ourselves and the world around us. So, so at the, the, the event I saw you at, you mentioned allyship is less about doing and more about being. And um, I think it'd be really helpful if you can, can share what allyship means to you and why this is an important topic of conversation to be initiating. Absolutely. So, you know, when you think about allyship, it's it's definitely different from another dimension, which I would say is education. So when some people and right now it's very relevant is sort of the topic of racial equity in society and in organizations. And so there are a lot of people that are saying, hey, I was not aware that there were these type of inequities going on. I didn't realize that this is what it looked like and that people were sort of living through this day in and day out or, you know, throughout their lives. And so let me educate myself. Let me learn more. That's a great first step before you take action and do anything, you know, you need to make sure that you have the, the right information. And so, but then there are some people that are saying, hey, I think I have a handle on this. I think I've, I'm ready to take action. What is that? What, is, what should it look like? And that's where we will bring in sort of the terminology of allyship. I think that, you know, I, I am a little bit critical of the definition you know, of allyship that's out there in sort of this equity, diversity, and inclusion space, which kind of says, hey, people who have more privilege, people who have, you know, more access are helping those people that are, you know, marginalized and, you know, inferior. And, and I don't like that. I think that although it may be true, it's important in our definition of allyship to take it way back right, to when we used to use the term of an ally in, in thinking and talking about war. It's just when two people are coming together, one that maybe has a little bit more influence just in that social context, and they are going to help that other party, you know, reach their goal. So allyship is specifically for when you're ready to take action. And, you know, you started to allude to this a little bit, is that it's really a personal journey. You know, right now in the context of this sort of racial equity discussion, we're seeing a lot of pressure, a lot of blaming and shaming being put on people who others perceive as not being able to take action fast enough, even organizations that are being pressured to do more, do more. And what happens is when that pressure is there, you have something called performative allyship, where we are looking like we're doing things, but we're really, you don't have a culture of allyship embedded or for an individual, you know, they don't really have the value system of allyship, right? They're, they are trying to do allyship, but can they just get to a point where they can just be an ally? And that distinction is, is important. And um, I'm always an advocate of allowing people to have their own allyship journey so that it's authentic. Authentic allyship is, is quite frankly, um, you know, the goal. And I'd rather take authentic allyship than someone who's inauthentic and taking quick action. 
So I want to dig into that a little bit further, Dr. Brandy, because I think that's really important. You use the term performative allyship, and I want to make sure people understand what that is. And I've heard that term used with the term slacktivism and, you know, people posting something on social media, but not really doing anything. So can, can you help us understand what the difference is between performative allyship? And also you bring up another great point is that we're all on our own journey. How do we know we're ready to be an ally? And what skills are required for that? Such good questions. Okay, so I love this. You're, you're on point today, Don. I'm loving this. So, well, I okay. follow you, Dr. Brandy. <laughs> Telling you, this is so good because people need access to this information. So, when you think about performative allyship, you know what differentiates it is the outcome. So, you know, I call uh, I sort of you know point out arts and crafts activism, you know, painting murals, using paint on streets for slogans, you know, uh, creating t-shirts, wearing swag, you know, that's related to, you know, supporting another group. Sure, that's okay. Is it showing solidarity? Perhaps, but really what is the outcome? And so I think that what's happened over the last, you know, 50 plus years is that we've seen a lot of this performative allyship. We've seen a lot of these signals and signs that have tripped us up into thinking that maybe we have progressed further than we really have. And a lot of companies and individuals are willing to do those type of things or support those type of things, but are they really ready to take deeper action? You know, yes, you may wear a t-shirt or you may put a Black Lives Matter sign in your window or something of that nature. But when you are in a conference room at your job and you realize that a coworker says something derogatory to your African-American employee, are you equipped, ready, and willing to step up and say, hey, I don't think that's an appropriate characterization of Janae. I actually didn't think Janae was angry just now. I just thought she was very passionate about her, the point she was trying to make. Are you ready to do that work? And so outcomes, you know, that's a great simple way for people to kind of wrap their brains around like, how do I know that I'm not just performing? Are we saying that there's something wrong with a mural? Am I saying that, that you know, well, you should not put a, a shirt on with a certain slogan? Absolutely not. What I'm saying is make sure that if you're claiming to be an ally, you're willing to go that next that extra step further and that next step further. Um, and then to, to sort of your second point, there are prerequisites for allyship. Everyone who just is like, hey, I want to help. I promise you, you are not ready for allyship. There are stages that you need to go through and, and you, know, you need to make sure that you can sort of meet these requirements, so to speak. The first one I'll say, you know, sort of briefly is your emotional state. You know, I've been doing a lot of you know, Zoom meetings and advising sessions, primarily with white professionals in corporate America saying, hey, come into a no judgment zone so that you can ask those questions that maybe you cannot ask your coworkers or don't feel comfortable asking some of your, you know, friends of color in a professional sense, come and ask me and my team and we will advise you. So I'm doing these groups, right? I've met with hundreds at this point over the last several weeks. And one of the things that came out in a lot of these sessions were people just saying, I'm devastated. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. You know, I can't believe this is going on. I'm drained. And you cannot be an effective ally if emotionally you have not, you know, stabilized yourself, right? And so when you think about, you know, one of the prerequisites, and I'll let you jump in here, you know, making sure that you are, you know, taking care of in terms of your mental health, your wellness is going to be important because we don't want you to act or behave from an emotional place. 
we want you to do it from a, a true place of being what I call sober-minded um, so that every decision that you make isn't colored by your emotion. So that's one example of, I think, a, a, a first prerequisite that's very important before people jump out there to be uh, an active ally. What I think is so important about what you just said, Dr. Brandy, is you're really giving people specifics. You're helping us see that it, you know, a lot of what we hear read online is is surface and the how, the what does that look like? What how, what can I do to tell if it's if it's working or if I'm ready? And I think that is so important because a lot of us feel like we, we've skipped that step of, um, you know, a really understanding. And so I'm so excited that you're on the show today because we we all are on a journey. And I love that you put it that way too, because, um, and, and everybody needs to recognize their place in the journey. Otherwise, you're probably not going to be as helpful as maybe you intend to be. Hey, if you're just tuning in, we're very excited to be here with Dr. Brandy Baldwin, author of Put in Work, Gain Respect, Influence Others, and Get Results as a new leader and authentic ally, a guilt-free guide to becoming an ally for racial equity. We're speaking about how we can all become better allies at work and in the world, and we're thrilled to have Dr. Brandy here sharing her expertise. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit her website, drbrandy.com. So Dr. Brandy, I wanted to ask you about unconscious bias training. On the webinar where I saw you a few weeks ago, you had mentioned in passing that, that the training was not designed to be used as it is being used in organizations. And so I wrote that down. I said, wow, that's, that's curious because I'm seeing that a lot mentioned. And if it's not working or we're not using it right, we really need to understand that. So can you say more about that, that comment? Absolutely. You know, it's unfortunate that companies have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, over the last probably two decades in unconscious bias training as a tool, you know, to support. And, and usually without saying it, it's really directed towards white professionals that work at the company, um, you know, to help them change their behaviors. But from a psychological perspective, you know, our unconscious drives, right, are one of the toughest things to overcome. And so this, um, um, sort of unconscious bias, implicit bias training. It's great for education. It is not great for transformation. And so knowing about your biases does not mean that you're going to be able to correct or change the behavior. Just like we all know certain foods we shouldn't eat. I know I probably shouldn't be having, you know, Starbucks every day. I shouldn't be eating that Krispy Kreme donut, you know, <laughs> as often as I do. But, you know, knowing what it means to be healthy and the behaviors to be healthy does not mean that it's going to change my behavior. And so I never recommend sort of an unconscious bias training. It's almost ironic, you know, and quite frankly, a, a lot of people who are, you know, blatant disruptors in organizations where it's, whether it's racism, sexism, or whatever other ism, it's not unconscious. It's, it's actually conscious bias. So if at a minimum, we should be doing conscious bias training, which doesn't exist. But, you know, it's the idea that, you know, the people who or the behaviors that we're trying to fix a lot of times are not as unconscious or subconscious as we actually think. Sometimes they are just maybe skills that people don't have. Um, and so we want to train them and say, hey, this is how you interact, you know, with a level of cultural competence. We like to really take that cultural competency approach and say, maybe you don't know um, about a certain culture. Maybe you don't know the terminology to use and why, because you haven't weren't raised around diversity 
university, that's okay. Let's elevate your cultural competence rather than sit you through an unconscious bias training. It's like trying to have a patient do surgery on themselves. There's no way you can figure all of that out and change your behavior and show up in a better way. And so, yeah, I, I'm not a proponent. I always, I never give it away, but I always give homework um, to people who are listening to me talk about this. Please go Google the, the professionals who started unconscious bias training, what it was originally used for. Do that research on your own so that you can, um, you know, have the full story of why it's just hasn't worked and it will not work in terms of, you know, what companies are trying to do with equity, diversity, and inclusion. But we love homework on Dr. Dawn on careers. So thank you for that. Uh, and let's let's kind of dig into that too, because um, you know, obviously we want to help people be more successful in their careers and how we show up in the workplace is important. Change starts with awareness. So the awareness part is important. And um I want, I think there's a lot of terms that people are hearing maybe for the first time. And, and we all forget that, you know, we've come from different upbringings and some things where we learned and other things we didn't. So one that comes up a lot that you hear are microaggressions. And I actually just saw a um, horrible <laughs> string of back and forth on social media about somebody who called someone else out and it went back and that is not the place to have that conversation but it occurred to me that wow maybe we need to talk about this more on a basic level and how to address it if it comes up in the workplace so can can you speak to that dr brandy Absolutely. So I want to actually, you know, share with everyone sort of the official definition for a microaggression, right? So it's a statement and action or an incident regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group, such as a racial or ethnic minority. So if I give you a common example of a microaggression or what people will say as, as an example will be sort of, let's say I'm presenting, you know, um, to my colleagues, you know, in a leadership meeting or wherever. And at the end of the meeting, you know, as we wrap up, uh, John comes up to me and says, wow, great presentation. You're actually pretty articulate. And it's like, okay, technically that was a compliment, but we could see this as potentially a microaggression. It's an indirect message to me that I assumed you wouldn't have been um, articulate, maybe based on, maybe because I'm a woman, maybe because I'm a millennial, maybe because I'm African-American. And so these microaggressions are hard to tackle sometimes because it's it's indirect, right? Um, if someone just came up to you and said, wow, I didn't know you were gonna be that articulate, you surprised me. That's not a microaggression, right? They're just being direct. So it's very subtle. Now, one of the things though that I think about this sort of concept of micro microaggressions that people are going around in circles and saying stop the microaggressions. People need to know, you know, what's a microaggression and what's not. I think that how you can correct for this is really on an interpersonal level. People need to start to take responsibility for creating the, the boundaries and the way that people interact with them. So if Dr. Dawn and I are sort of in a meeting and you you say something to me, and this is not all about uh, race either. Microaggressions can come from a male to a female, you know, and baby boomer to a millennial, vice versa. You know, this has no bearing or judgment on sort of the, the, the group. But how you sort of uh, a correct for this is interpersonally. That means that if someone says something to you that's maybe out of bounds or, you know, something about your hair 
or something about how you speak and that's a topic that you just don't want them to address you, you know, with, then simply just state that in that interpersonal interaction and say, hey, Bob, you know what, thank you so much for that compliment and, um, you know, and move on or you may redirect them. But I think that where we get into trouble is the labeling. And a lot of the terminology and the labeling, you know, these microaggressions, you hear terms white fragility, white privilege, you know, I can, and the list goes on in the racial equity context. I think that that sometimes we get away from and get distracted by being, being, you know, trying to name and label things instead of focusing on the solution. And so what is the fix? That's where myself and my team and what we do with the Calling All Allies Project, we are helping people to overcome that rather than sort of staying in this perpetual limbo, you know, this purgatory of you did this, you said that, that was a microaggression. See, that was a microaggression. Well, now that we know that was a microaggression, now what? You know, um, last thing I'd sort of say to this is, Interpersonal dynamics in the relational context really matters. What that means is that rules are not hard and fast for everyone. You know, Dr. Dawn and I may have known each other for years. So there are some things that she may be able to say to me that someone who I just met who was a white professional, for example, cannot say because we they don't have the context that they don't know me like that, right? And then at the same time, there may be an African-American person that I've never met a day in my life, but right out the gate, I can have a little bit more of a casual conversation with them because we have a collective consciousness. And so we don't want to, for anyone that's listening today, you know, it's not about rules. What do I do? What don't I do? What's the blueprint? It's about being open being receptive, being observant. Just because you're a white professional, for example, just using this because it's very relevant right now, are you telling me that it's that hard to figure out what it looks like when someone's being disrespected? No, it's not. We know what disrespect looks like across the board. And so once you sort of don't overcomplicate it, then you can move to, well, what can I do about it? And why am I not able to step in there? And a lot of times we find that it's not because someone's racist or it's not because they just are not as educated about another culture to know how to help them. It's really about, hey, you're realizing that you're actually a risk averse. You actually are not great at your conflict management. You're actually nervous to even speak up for yourself, much less speak up for Janae. You, you know, it's interpersonal. And so with allyship, it's a personal journey of saying, what do I do? Now that I know what do I do, do I have the capacity to do that consistently? And do I have the authenticity and passion so that when I do it, it really means something. It's not a reverse ego boost to myself. Yeah, that is such a great point. And I, I do want to follow up on that because you've inspired so many questions in me, Dr. Brandy. But really quickly, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Dr. Dawn Graham. And if you want to stay up to date on the latest career and job search news, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Dawn Graham. Today, we are so fortunate to be speaking with Dr. Brandy Baldwin, CEO of Millennial Ventures and host of the Diversity and Confusion podcast and Career Therapy podcast. So uh, what you said was so important because I do think that sometimes people get really confused trying to put so many rules around right and wrong. And so, um, you know, they're hearing these, these different pieces of advice, reach out to your black colleagues and check it. No, don't reach out because it's not, it's not up to them to educate you or post, don't post. And I think what happens, Dr. Brandy, is that people are so um, either confused or afraid to make a mistake that they end up doing nothing. <laughs> and that's, that's definitely not the right answer. So if somebody finds themselves in this 
this space? What is a good first step to move past this? Great question. So I would definitely say start in your own context around you, right in your environment. What can you do? Maybe it's maybe for you, it's not about engaging with your, you know, African-American colleagues or friends in any given way. Maybe you just want to have a conversation with your own community, your own, you know, uh, white family members or, you know, friends. Maybe you learned something or you read a book or you've listened to Dr. Dawn, you know, this episode and you say, oh my gosh, you know, you really need to listen to this. It really helped me think differently about this. And you're just sharing a resource, right? So I think that people, can really do a lot of damage, you know, in a good way by starting in their sphere of influence first and foremost. The second thing I think is, you know, we want to educate and make sure that you're always outcome focused. And so when you're digging, you know, beneath the layers and using this sort of the African-American experience as our example, you know, for, for the day, our sort of case study for the day, you, you need to say, hey, where are the disparities um, across the board? So sure, police brutality is getting a, a lot of airplay right now for whatever reason, but what about educational opportunities? What about, you know, women, abused women in these communities? What about, you know, there, there's so many other layers and economics is very important. So I always give this example of allies organizational allies, individual allies that wanted to step up so quickly to help the Black and African-American community that they gave over $400 million to the Black Lives Matter Foundation, you know, and after some investigative, you know, reporting, um, we found weeks later that out of that $400 million plus that was being donated, that some of those funds were being misappropriated and, and siphoned back to white organizations, you know, um, primarily, which is like, come on, you know, and I'm thinking, hey, if you were in Atlanta, instead of cutting a check to an organization out there somewhere that you're not 100% sure, you know, where the money is going, why didn't you just see about that store in your backyard? Why didn't you see how you could patronize, you know, a local, you know, um, you know, a store or support a local nonprofit. You know, we you, we don't want you to be lazy or callous or jump on the bandwagon where the same four or five organizations, you know, got a huge monetary boost and then their businesses and organizations and individuals right in your backyard who had to close their doors because we've had such a rough year. And, you know, so if you're going to be an ally, I think it's important for you to educate yourself and then, hey, if you're one of those people that wants to cut a check, cut a check but do your due diligence to make sure that the outcome is something that, you know, we can feel, that the community can feel or whatever group that you're trying to support. You know, that, that leads me to another uh, point, Dr. Brandy, on that same topic around, I've seen so many companies posting jobs for diversity and inclusion experts or pulling together committees and task force. And again, it's it's this rush to take action and, and move forward, which on the one hand is good, but on the other hand is if you haven't really thought through it and how you're going to create something that drives results, again, you're back to this whole situation with donating to an organization that's not doing what you think it's going to do. So what can companies be doing instead of just rushing into this to make sure that the efforts they're taking and the people that maybe they're bringing on board or, or bringing onto these committees actually have true impact? 
Great question. So the first thing is, you know, I think they need to prioritize if they want to do something outward facing or inward facing. So outward towards the community or in or for their employees. Um, you have a conundrum that Nike, for example, got into recently where they donated a couple hundred million dollars um, towards quote unquote black and African American causes and then laid off 500 um, employees for budget reasons, you know? So it's like, oh, okay, you know, how did that work out? What was the strategy behind that? You know, um, I'm also a big proponent of sort of data. Right. We want to be take strategic action and data and information is important. Who said you needed a diversity committee? Who said that maybe you just need a study to figure out that, that there's a, maybe pay inequities and you just need to fix it, throw money and make sure that everyone like that in two or three weeks, you can fix some of the pay disparities and pay gaps in your company. Boom, that, that's equity, you know? And so I think that data is very important. And then the last thing I'll say, and I said it a little bit earlier, you know, companies cannot do surgery on themselves. The patient cannot do surgery on themselves. You need an outside expert. You need what, what we call DEI advisors at this point, someone that every move that you take, you're, you're checking with them and saying, does this make sense? How does this fit with our brand, you know? Uh, is this a grounded approach so that people are not, um, organizations are not sort of performing and demonstrating and showing that they are doing the right thing when really the outcomes aren't there. And there's been a lot of scrutiny, Adidas, even Amazon, um, are, you know, got a lot of scrutiny because they put these awesome letters out. They donated all this money to everybody else. And even their employees said, this is laughable that they're doing this because they've been treating black and brown employees like trash essentially for years. And we've known this and no one in the C-suite is of color and, you know, and so authenticity is important or the blowback from this um, could be detrimental long-term to a brand as an employer, as well as consumer facing. Um, and the last thing I'll kind of say is tokenism. Tokenism has gone wild lately. Everyone, you know, Black and African-American is getting a promotion these days. And I think that companies need to make sure that they, you know, understand that in this case, uh, African-American professionals are not asking for a handout. They're not asking to skip the line. They're just saying, make sure that we have an equitable process to you know, show and prove that we can be in leadership. And so we don't want people to be promoted to positions but not actually have real power. So you have to check your motives and check your intentions. Sometimes uh, organizational leaders can't see the forest for the trees. So we recommend having an, a second set of eyes and an outside advisor to, to help. Dr. Brandy, it has been so refreshing and enlightening having you on the show today because you really you took some difficult topics and broke them down into pieces that people can actually use and that people can um, fully understand. And I love that about your approach to this work. It is so helpful. And you've also helped us to see that we're all on our own journey. And I think that was such an important point as well. Where can people learn more about you, your work, your books, and all of the, the great things that um, you're doing in this space? So the central hub, of course, is drbrandy.com, all spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-I.com. And there'll be a link there to the Calling All Allies project, where we're really killing it right now with our equity, diversity, and inclusion work. You can also go directly there to callingallallies.com. Thanks so much, Dr. Dawn. Thank you, Dr. Brandy. And I highly encourage that you follow Dr. Brandy. She does a lot of speaking. And every single time I read something or listen, I learn something new that is completely helpful to, to my career and uh, life in general. So do follow Dr. Brandy. And hey, 
You're listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers on Sirius XM 132. If you want to stay current, get insightful tips on your job search, and find out what you need to be doing to manage your career, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Dawn Graham. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 